my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wealth. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at River.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. Over the last five years, the Bitcoin Conference has become the world's largest gathering of Bitcoiners. From breaking announcements and international media coverage to countless meaningful talks by thought leaders and industry innovators, we are excited to continue our drive for global hyper-Bitcoinization. From July 25th to the 27th, 2024, we'll be taking the Bitcoin Conference to the city of music and freedom, Nashville, Tennessee. Join thousands of attendees for countless opportunities to learn, engage, and network across three days of pure Bitcoin signal. Get your tickets now for the best price at b.tc forward slash conference. You are not going to want to miss what Nashville has in store. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. FedWatch, your source for no-nonsense Bitcoin and macro discussions. My name is Ansel Lindner. I am joined by my co-host, CK. How are you doing, CK? Doing good. Happy to be back again. We took a little bit of a break. Uh, both Angel and I were traveling, but we are uh, we're back home and we are here to do another episode of FedWatch just in time. So uh, yeah, big week. Yeah, Antel, Um, Yeah. How, how was vacation? Oh, it was good. I went to the Little League World Series. Uh, it was here oh, in yeah. Florida. So uh, my daughters were playing in the softball Little League World Series. They did very well. They played with everybody. They didn't do a good job of winning, but they did a good job of staying up with all the competition. And so it was a great experience for all, all involved. I mean, it is uh, some really steep competition once you're at the World Series level. So that's pretty amazing to hear about your, your daughters being great athletes. But um, a lot to talk about in macro I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about Bitcoin Amsterdam. We are dropping new and exciting speakers every single day. Go check out the site, b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. October 12th through the 13th, ticket prices go up every single month. And you can still get a ticket to Bitcoin Amsterdam for relatively cheap. It is coming up in less than 80 days. So see me in Amsterdam. I'm going to be at Bitcoin Amsterdam and, uh, you know, we're going to have all the same Bitcoin conference magic, the news desk, all the amazing stages, incredible production, even better networking. So the entire European Bitcoin ecosystem will be there uh, and a really strong showing as usual from the Dutch audience. So uh, the sale ticket sales have been strong so far. We are looking to have the biggest Bitcoin event in Europe ever. So uh, some work to do there still, but uh, the event is quickly approaching but with that being said, use promo code BM Live to save an additional ten percent. And uh, Ansel, let's uh, yeah. let's jump into any housekeeping you might have, my man. Yeah, just the topics for today. We're going to talk about Bitcoin, like uh, 
like we said there, we took last week off, so there's a lot to catch up on. Big week for the FOMC and the Federal Reserve. U.S. GDP dropped this morning, so we're going to take a look at that. Uh, ECB also had a policy decision today. And lastly, we're going to round it out with a discussion on China's economic model and some wake-up calls going on over there uh, for the Chinese elite. But if that sounds good to you guys, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. We can see the comments uh, live. So if you're watching live on YouTube or Rumble, you can comment and we will uh, get to those questions if we can, if we have time. But it is going to be a jam-packed show. So that's all. Uh, other than, hey guys, check out my other podcast, Bitcoin and Markets. You can find that at bitcoinandmarkets.com. Check out the Telegram and the Twitter and all that. So, all right. Uh, CK, you went to the Lightning Summit, correct? And so what, what were the updates that you, the takeaways from the Lightning Summit? Um, uh, so I did not, uh, so I went to the lightning summit two weeks ago and, uh, I mean, honestly, there was a lot going on. The networking was absolutely fantastic. There was, uh, an announcement of the mutiny wallet as well as a lot of kind of technical walkthroughs. Um, when I go to these summits, <laughs> I don't actually attend a ton of the content and talks. I'm more there to meet the Bitcoiners, um, chat with old friends uh, potentially create some business opportunities. I'm giving tours of Bitcoin Magazine HQ. So, um, you know, it's definitely an active time for me. A lot of fun, though. And the energy around Lightning is very interesting. I would say from mm. the developer's perspective, Lightning has a lot of failures. They're more focused on what's wrong with Lightning than what's mm. right with it. But on the flip side, I was using Lightning to buy drinks there, right? There's Lightning startups founding and paying for, uh, for the summit. So, uh, I think that it, you know, obviously lightning is making a lot of strides on the flip side, developers are developers, developers, they're in the weeds of what's wrong, right? They, they're the ones who break lightning the most. They're the ones who have the most issues with lightning. You know, there's the, they're the ones with the most skin in the game, probably sats lost to the lightning network force closes, uh, five high fee environments, etc. So, um, it's definitely a contact sport out there in lightning land. Uh, so I would say that that was like the predominant sentiment from the summit. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think of development, I think of uh, like the high level development being 90% thinking through problems, you know, and so they can see down the road uh, what part of the code, what part of the incentives, uh, that kind of thing are going to have issues. And so, yeah, they are the ones that are leading that charge of looking what what's wrong so if, if you were to tell me the opposite that they didn't see anything wrong that actually i would maybe be more concerned with that uh so yeah totally. i have a a few little notes here of stuff uh tell me about splicing do you know what's going on new news about splicing and was it zeus wallet or who was that phoenix wallet yeah phoenix. so split so when you want to add liquidity to a channel Typically, you, from my understanding, um, there's no way to like do a Bitcoin transaction to add additional liquidity. You have to like route it through the Lightning Network. So, like when you open a channel, you have kind of like the initial amount, mm -hmm. and that's going out, and you have someone who's opening a channel with you with liquidity going the other way. And there wasn't a way to take outside Bitcoin from Bitcoin was outside from the Lightning Network and and use it to top up a balance on in your channel. Um, and with splicing effectively, that's a way to take, to add additional liquidity to a channel that is already existing from, uh, from an on-chain transaction. In terms of how that works, 
I don't know. Um, I know that it was implemented in Eclair uh, as uh, as an as a uh, lightning uh, instance or uh, uh, a, a node. why am I blanking on the term uh, node node. Um, gosh, implementation. implementation. There you yeah. go. As a lightning implementation, I know that C Lightning has been uh, has had a lot of work done on it uh, on splicing. So. Um, I think the only wallet in production, as far as I know, is, is the Phoenix wallet, which is built on Eclair. It's kind of vertical. It's like Eclair is made for the Phoenix wallet. Um, so, um, and the Phoenix wallet is made to use Eclair, uh, and they have uh, they have splicing now. Um, but I would say it's a relatively advanced feature, but it is a really big deal. It increases efficiency of the Lightning Network massively because you don't necessarily have to close a channel to open a new better channel um you can just that's huge you can just re-up your existing channel um and also you know it, it it's it's a, a utility so it's a big deal um but it's very beta very kind of advanced uh user software um yeah what else hit, hit me with your questions i just like the economy where i'm not that smart i'm also not that smart when it comes to the, the deep technical stuff but i'm doing my best here guys all right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I like that incremental uh, improvements in Lightning. Um, I have also been somewhat negative on Lightning in the last year because of uh, its the speed of capacity growth, and also that you know, what are your thoughts on this? That the UTXO set is just a limiting factor for Lightning, so you can't have all eight billion people using a hundred channels right because the utxo set would just be too big so what are your thoughts on lightning uh does that kind of sound similar to what people were saying at the summit yeah people were talking about how far can lightning go for sure and like what are lightning's limitations you know personally in my mind i don't see lightning as um as being like a consumer solution mm -hmm. um i think that there are consumer solutions still coming i think that like we are, you know, we're still operating on the tank rails of Bitcoin. So for me, Lightning makes an enormous amount of sense as a B2B, like high value, high velocity of money, institution to institution model. When people yeah. say spoken, when people used to like call Lightning, like is going to be centralized, like there's going to be, it's going to be a hub and spoke model. Like mm -hmm. to me, that's dumb because it's only going to be hubs. <laughs> like, it like you know like there's not going to be spokes it's just gonna be massive users um yeah. and that honestly i think that's like where lightning operates best right it's it's almost like um you know enterprise server level tech um that is built on top of bitcoin um and you know i like to just remind people how early we are we're in year 14 of bitcoin we are in having we're about to experience having number four on bitcoin like we are extremely, we're less than 1% adoption. You know, when we are at these levels in the internet, we are in a very rudimentary stage and right. that's still kind of where we're at in Bitcoin. So um, there's going to be much, much better tech um, than, than what exists right now. Much better tech. All right. Well, going from um, that kind of consumer solution and lightning on one side, uh, there was some big news that went on on the week that we were off and that is, RFK talking about uh, backing the dollar with Bitcoin. And we have been on the forefront of this conversation talking a lot about the inevitable 
like people say the dollar is going to die, but I, I've always said the dollar is not going to die. It's just simply going to be backed by Bitcoin. So what were your thoughts on the RFK news and um, maybe the plans for how he's talking about implementing this? It is, well, I would say the biggest thing to notice here is one, the fact that the Overton window is shifting around Bitcoin in the political conversation. Now you have, you know, let's call it outside candidates trying to appease to the Bitcoin uh, maximalist specific, specifically the Bitcoin maximalist uh, group. I think that that's extremely fascinating that that's happening and that mm -hmm. shows that our narratives are working and that shows that our, our movement is building momentum, um, which is extremely bullish. And again, it's still early. You know, let's talk about the next presidential election after this yeah. one, right? Like, where's Bitcoin going to be then? You know, the funny thing is we talk about CBDCs all the time here. And they're like, we'll ship this in 2030. It's like, where's Bitcoin going to be in 2030? Like when you finally yep. ship. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I really like I'm hyper bullish on Bitcoin for these reasons. With that being said, what he said is interesting, too. You know, I think the capital gains element is much more realistic and a much bigger deal for Bitcoiners right now. That's going to make the United States one of the most appealing Huge. places to own Bitcoin, period. That's yeah. really what's important. On the flip side, the dollar being backed by Bitcoin, that, I mean, it's almost like a ridiculous promise right now. But <laughs> I think it's something that becomes much less ridiculous, you know, many years from now, uh, you know, yeah. maybe in eight years. I, it just really depends on how fast Bitcoin escalates. But the, the dollar is going to have to be in a much different position before that's realistic. I think he did clarify those statements yesterday on the spaces with a bunch of with Scott Melker and a bunch of other Bitcoin people. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of, of Scott, but he had great guests on there and it, it was a high value spaces. So, you know, you can't you can't you can't talk bad about that. But he did say, like, I wouldn't back all treasuries with Bitcoin. He really walked it back and made a much more eloquent kind of description. He's like, I would make sure that the treasury offers a U U.S. treasury option or product that is backed by hard currency, including Bitcoin, you know, which is, I think that's much more doable in the short term. Again, I'm not an expert there. Maybe you can be an expert to like how doable politically some of these things are. But I definitely think two big things, huge takeaways is one shift in the Overton window. That is the most important thing. And then in terms of the promises, the no capital gains promise, uh, that is the most intriguing one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. My initial response was, holy cow, he just busted open this Overton window for everyone to talk about a Bitcoin backed dollar. Um, and also the, the way that he's going to go, that he plans to implement it is, you know, less than 1%. Up front, like you say, offer a product that is backed by Bitcoin. And that just gives the government a market reason to start buying Bitcoin. Um, you don't want the, I mean, there's got to be some something that pushes the US government out there into the market to start buying Bitcoin. And if you're going to back a product like that, then that just gives you that reason to do that. So slowly but surely, uh, that product will have a lot of demand. It'll force the government to buy Bitcoin. And then the discussion gets even more clear. OK, big, you know, the U.S. government, maybe in five years time, they have 100,000 bitcoins for this product. Now it becomes a uh, much different conversation of, of fully backing the dollar with Bitcoin. 
But yeah, I was blown away by this plan. And it's coming from a major, you know, uh, candidate out there. Uh, I don't think that he will be successful. Maybe he will be, but um, it's just, yeah. I, if you would have asked me four years ago, if somebody like this would be saying backing the dollar with Bitcoin, no way in hell. Uh, They're supposed to be fighting us, remember? And now they are actually adopting. So that, that's my comments on that. The incentives work or they don't. No one's bullish enough. That's been my message for a long time, y'all. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into the FOMC. We have a few clips here. And I tried to break out the most important answers during the Q&A. Um, but for just to summarize here, the Fed has raised by another 25 basis points up to 5.25 to 5.5%. That's their FOMC or sorry, that's their uh, Fed funds target range now and uh that last month they had paused there was some back and forth between whether this that was going to be the last hike already or if they're going to hike again the market was predicting a 99 percent chance that they would hike so the fed did not disappoint the market and they went ahead and hiked the 25 basis points um we see cpi coming down uh, i think that will continue so some of the reasons behind their hikes is starting to uh you know get cleared up and i actually i have on my the notes here about talking about oil and i forgot to get a chart of that but anyway let's roll into the first clips um this is going to be risks on both sides side. sorry sorry Hi, uh, chris rugaver at associated press so uh consumer confidence in the economy is rising uh likely in large part because of, of the declines in headline inflation you also see wages are also rising faster than prices now uh, after trailing them for a long time. How much are Americans truly uh, harmed by inflation at its current level, headline level of 3%? And with that in mind, when do you put some weight back on the employment side of the dual mandate? So I guess I'd say it this way. Um, first, it is, it is a good thing that headline inflation has come down so much because that's really what the public experiences. And, and I, I would say that having headline inflation move down that much almost creates a, it, it will strengthen the broad sense that, that the public has that inflation is coming down, which will in turn, we hope, help, help inflation continue to move down. Um, so you are really, sorry, but what your question was? Well, I mean, you've talked for many press conferences now about the harm created by inflation, how hard yeah. it is for people. To, so how much of that are we still seeing with inflation now down at three? So I guess I would put it this way. We, we, um, I'd say it this way. It's really a question of how do you balance the two risks, the risk of doing too much or doing too little. And, you know, we, I would say that, um, you know, we're coming to a place where, where there really are risks on both sides. It's hard to say exactly whether, whether they're in balance or not. But as our, as our stances become more restrictive we, and inflation moderates, we do increasingly face that risk. But, um, you know, we, we need to see that inflation is durably down that far. We, you know, as, as you know, we think and most economists think that core inflation is actually a better signal of where, of, of where headline inflation is going because headline inflation is affected greatly by volatile uh, energy and food prices. So we would want core inflation to be coming down because that's what we think it, that's core is, is signaling where head, headline is going to go in the future. And core inflation is still pretty elevated. You know, there's reason to think it, it can come down now, but it's, it's still quite elevated. And so we think we need to stay on task, uh, and we think we're going to need to hold 
certainly hold policy at a restricted levels for some time, and we need to be prepared to raise further if that if we think that's appropriate. Well, and then if inflation were to just a quick follow, uh, if it stays at three or drops even a little bit more, I mean, how much of an increase in unemployment do you think is acceptable to get that last bit of inflation? People are talking about the potential difficulty of the last so-called last mile of inflation. So. But how much, again, how much unemployment do you think is justified to get down that last so it, one? It is, it is um, a very positive thing that actually the unemployment rate is the same as it was when we lifted off in March of 22 at 3.6%. So that's a real blessing and that we've been able to achieve some disinflation. Um, and we don't seek to, it's not that we're aiming to, to raise unemployment, but I would just say the historical record, we have to be honest about the historical record, which does suggest that when central banks go in and slow the economy to bring down inflation, the result tends to be some softening in labor market conditions. And so that is still the, the likely outcome here. Um, and, you know, we hope that that's as, as little as possible. We have to be honest that that is, that that is the likely outcome. The worst outcome for everyone, of course, would be not to deal with inflation now, not get it done. Uh, whatever the short-term social costs of getting inflation under control, the longer-term social costs of failing to do so are greater, and that the, the historical record is very, very clear on that. If you go through a period where inflation expectations are not anchored, inflation is volatile, it interferes with people's lives and with economic activity, and, you know, that's the, that's the thing we, we, we really need to avoid and will avoid. All right. So on there, uh, he was talking about risks. The, the, from that little clip, I took out that there's risks on both sides, doing too much and doing too little. They don't know what the balance is right now. They're kind of uh, just moving very slowly and methodically. Um, CK, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Also, um, just overall from this first clip, we have been somewhat supportive of Powell because he seems to be a straight shooter. He's actually, I mean, I personally remember Yellen and Bernanke uh, as Fed chairman and Powell is just so much more of a straight shooter, somebody that I think can build confidence in the Fed. But what what was your takeaway from this little short clip and Powell's performance? Um, well, I think that the actual result, uh, it was interesting because it confirmed the, the kind of narrative of last the last uh, FOMC meeting where they paused. Um, it was like uh, the hawkish pause, right? Where there's a pause, but they're going to raise more later. So they raised more. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, him talking about these delicacies that are how delicate this, you know, the balance that they're trying to play. Like, I fully agree that that's the case. I would say everything that they're doing, the economy is reacting despite them. So like, they think that they brought inflation down. I don't think that any of their action actually brought number down. I think that that was just the economy by itself and anything like they're just throwing, they're just throwing false signals at the economy. Yep. Um, so um, whatever is happening has really very little to do with them. And if anything, it would, it would be better without them. But beyond that, you know, again, in the comments, someone comment Bitcoin fixes this. You know, I really do see when I think of prices, I call I think of those as like economic measurements. And I think like right now we just live in this world where though like on, on the base level, that is something that is kind of 
unreliable. So our economy will improve when we get to something that is reliable. I think that that is Bitcoin. But despite believing that, the average person still believes Powell's narrative. You know, I know a lot of well-meaning, smart, educated people who have high-paying, white-collar jobs. They listen to him say that. He's like, wow, sounds like a reasonable guy. That's how the economy works. You know, that's still where we're at. And then, you know, the people who are a layer removed from them are like, wow, inflation's through the roof. And then the people who are removed from that are like Ansel, who are, you know, now they're really thinking into how the, the global economy works. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult to, to navigate what's happening. Uh, and what he says on stage, I think he is very competent at, you know, holding the line in terms of managing competent, conf, confidence. And he looks good right now compared to how he looked like six or seven months ago. That's for sure. Um, yeah. So it seems like the heat is has cooled down. And who knows if the results are good, but everyone is in this malaise that it's better. Um, it seems like it, it's almost like in the short term, you know, he's at least pulled it off for now. So I'm curious what you think. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to the audience to get the wrong understanding that I am. I don't think we need a Federal Reserve. Uh, I think that it would be best if we didn't have a Federal Reserve. And for a long time, I thought these Fed chairmen were evil. But maybe that's because we had not so good Fed chairmen like Bernanke and Yellen. They are just unlikable. Where Powell, I think, is more of, I don't know, kind of like a grandfather figure, somebody that is a little bit more likable. So, um, and also we brought this up on our last show about the multipolar world that I'm seeing is Wall Street and the Fed versus the BRICS versus Davos. Not it's not going to be the US, Russia, and China. These are different groups. And so the Fed and Wall Street is kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend at this point. Their RFK we just talked about is um, wanting to back the dollar partially with Bitcoin. So it just seems like, you know, it's counterproductive to hate on everybody, right? And so I think that if we just take a common sense look at what Powell is saying, how he's saying it, what the teams are, that we're you know, I, I think it's positive. This is a positive development. But anyway, what was I going to say about this? Um, I said, okay, yeah, you, you were mentioning that the economy would have done this regardless of what the Fed did. And yes, that's one of the common uh, narratives of this show. We they, they talk about jobs numbers here in a second in the next couple clips. And what I'm saying, what, what, I'm seeing out there is that as this headline inflation comes down as quote unquote inflation, as CPI comes down, people aren't having to get as many second jobs. Maybe, you know, the people that would have gotten a third job are not going to get a third job. So just by the CPI coming down, it relieves some of that pressure on the job market. And that's what we're seeing out there. We're not seeing any reaction uh, from, uh, or reaction to Fed policy, we're just seeing reaction to this typical cycle. You know, we had a supply shock, massive supply shock, war in Europe, and now we're coming down on the other side of this. And really, I don't see where the Fed has done anything mechanical to the market. So uh, that's what I have for this first clip. Anything else before we go on the next one, CK? No, let's go to the next clip, and then I'll, I'll continue my ramblings after that. 
Nick Timoros of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Chair Powell, markets uh, widely believe the median FOMC participants' inflation forecast uh, from June for the fourth quarter of this year will be too high, given autos and shelter. Uh, that by September, that may warrant a downward revision in the inflation forecast of 20 to 30 basis points. Would that type of inflation progress be enough to hold rates steady from here, or do you need to see below trend growth and decelerating labor income growth to be convinced that you've done enough? It, so it's hard to pick the pieces apart and say, you know, how much of this and how much of that. You know, we be, we'll be looking at everything. And, uh, you know, we'll, of course, we'll be looking to see whether the signal from June CPI is replicated or, or the opposite of replicated or whether it's somewhere in the middle. We'll be looking at the growth data. We'll be looking at the labor market data very closely, of course, and making an overall judgment about that. It's, it's the totality of the data, I think, but with a particular focus on, on making progress on inflation. Last month, you said there were benefits to moderating the pace of increases because it would give you more information to make decisions. Would another CPI report, like the one we just had in June, allow you to at least maintain that slower pace and defer until the fall any decision on whether you need that second rate hike? So I'm just going to tell you again what we're going to do in September. We're going to look at, at two additional job reports, two additional CPI reports, lots of activity data. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to make that decision then. And that decision could could mean another hike in, in September, or it could mean that we decide to maintain at that level. And, again, the question we're going to be asking ourselves is, is the, is the overall signal one that we need to do more, that we need to tighten further? And if we get that signal whenever we get it, then and that's the collective judgment of the committee, then we'll, we will move ahead. If we don't, you know, then, then um, we'll have the option of, of maintaining policy at that level. But... It's, it's, you know, it's, it's really dependent so much on the data, and we just don't have it yet. All right. What struck me about this one is there, he's talking about all the different types of data they're, they're waiting for. He can't look at any one thing and see progress in, say, CPI, and that's going to totally dictate what they're going to do. But what struck me is that they have all, this different, all these different data points, but one tool. All they can do is raise or lower rates. CK, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, and what data is enough? How can you react to the data soon enough? You know, is quantitative tightening or easing quantitative if it's reactive, right? If it takes six months for this data to really get fully confirmed and updated and, you know, uh, re, you know, they have these revisions all the time, you know, so what what data is the right data and in what way is the right way to steer the economy you know how can you steer an economy you know which if you think of it like a massive ship you know if you're reacting in hindsight right like after mm -hmm. it happened so um it's it's a it's almost like a paradox um and yeah i mean that's why we think that it would be better on a on let's just say a even playing ground system where there there is not the the interventions from an outside arbiter um like th there is no correct data and there is no human way for them to process the data in time it, it might even be better if they were making gut decisions based on what they're seeing on the ground over what they're doing which is like this like data driven hindsight way you know I don't know. What do you think about that, Ansel? Yeah, well, that's kind of what they're doing. They're looking at the data and they're t making their best guess, right? And so it is kind of just a, 
a gut reaction or a gut. They're going on their gut here a lot, but also so I'm just saying go for the go with their gut, but forget the data. Just just see what's happening on the ground. Yeah, or react just, to the narrative. Exactly. If well, that's kind of what they do. They follow the market. They being data dependent, they could just get rid of the data and just pretty much follow the stock market or follow the bond market, and they, it would be pretty much the same thing. But um, let's keep rolling on these clips. Uh, the next one here is going to be about. Uh, the Powell thinking there's going to be no recession. So let's roll it. Uh, a good part of Wall Street has become more confident that the Fed is going to be able to engineer a soft landing and uh, they've reduced their forecast for recession. And I'm wondering if the staff has changed its view on the likelihood of recession being likely, and if you personally have changed your view in terms of becoming more confident that you can achieve a soft landing. So um, it's, it has been my view consistently that we do have a shot, and my base case is that we will be able to achieve uh, inflation moving back down to our target without the kind of really significant downturn that results in high levels of job losses that we've seen in some past uh, in some past instances many past instances of, of tightening that look like ours that's been my view that that is that's uh, that's still my view um, and I think you know that that's sort of consistent with with um, with what I see uh, today so but it's it's a long way from assured and and you know we we have a, we have a lot left to go to see that happen so the staff now has uh, a noticeable slowdown in growth starting la uh, later this year in the forecast. But given the resilience of the economy recently, they are no longer forecasting a recession. Um, it's, I just want to note that, it's, uh, that our staff produces its own forecast, which is independent of the forecast that we as FOMC participants produce. Having an independent staff forecast as well as the individual uh, participant forecast is a really a strength of our, of our process. Um, there's just a lot of, um, I think, constructive diversity of opinion that, that, that helps us make, uh, help, informs our deliberations, helps us make, um, I hope, better decisions. And is the reason for optimism that inflation has come down and you still have a strong labor market? I mean, does that uh, add to the optimism? I wouldn't use the term optimism about this yet. I would, I would say, though, that there's a pathway. And yes, that's 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 a good way to think about it. We've we've seen so far the beginnings of disinflation without any real costs in the labor market, and that's a, that's a really good thing. Um, I would just also say the historical records suggest that there's very likely to be some softening in labor market conditions, and consistent with having a soft landing, you would you would have some softening in, in labor market conditions, and that's still likely as we as we go forward with this process. But it's, it's a good thing to date that we haven't, we, we haven't really seen that. We've seen softening through other, not through unemployment, not through higher unemployment. We've seen softening through, uh, you know, job openings coming down part of the way back to more normal levels, the quits rate, so people are not quitting as much. Um, we've seen participation, people coming in, and so labor supply has, has improved, which, is, which has lowered the temperature in the labor market, which was quite overheated, uh, you know, uh, going back a year or so. So we're, we're seeing that kind of cooling, and that's, that's very healthy. And, um, you know, we hope it continues. All right. So they're seeing no recession. Uh, we have been talking about this on the show here. Uh, my, like my odds were 25% no recession, 50% mild, and 25% 
hard recession or deep recession. And we also went through people like Jamie Dimon last year. And he was like, oh, we're seeing an economic hurricane. We're seeing big, big time, like a 30% chance of a, another great financial crisis. You know, so uh, all of these numbers are switching. These odds are switching. But this show has been pretty consistent. Um, CK, what are your thoughts on the recession call? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. You've been saying, well, I think you said like 25% chance of hard landing, 50% chance of soft landing, uh, 25% chance of no recession at all. And I think you've, you've been saying that for longer than anyone else, much longer than Powell. Um, but in terms of um, specifically, you know, what this show has been saying and, and how people should think about it, for me, it's like, hey, maybe there's not a statistical recession but I think life is getting harder and the economy is working uh, worse for the majority of people. And like the, the actual infrastructure that we're living on is breaking down. Uh, so whether that is government services, whether that's roads, whether that is air travel, like it's definitely gotten much worse. I, I, I think I've taken like 45 flights this year so far. Air travel has gotten worse. I can tell you from experience. I've done, I'm no stranger to flights. So um, yeah, you know, there, there's this like paradox, like what's the stock market doing? What's the economy doing? Are people working? Are these measurements going up? And then how, what's life like? And I just think that life is just getting worse. And that's, that's going to help people see Bitcoin, not to be the guy who always brings it back to Bitcoin. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, with, with CPI so high, you can have CPI crashing and GDP crashing at the same time. So that is a, it feels like a big recession, even though statistically or by the numbers, it's not going to be a recession. So uh, that was actually what drove my predictions on this. But yeah, let's, let's keep speeding through these. Can we go to the next clip? Are you ready for that? Last clip. Last clip. Thank you, Chair Powell. First, uh, let me compliment your tie, the choice of tie. <laughs> um, so thanks for taking our question. So the Beige Book, it said, input cost pressures remain elevated for services firms, but e eased notably for manufacturing sector. Is that an indication that there's a, a wage inflation pressure? And how do you target and pressure on the wage inflation without pushing the economy into recession? Well, I think the as it relates to goods, it's really an indication that, that supply chains and, and shortages are easing. And so what was the first part of it? So, so uh, wage inflation, like how do, you, how do you target wage inflation without pushing an economy into a recession? I, I, don't, I don't think we're targeting wage inflation. I, th I think what we're, what we're looking for is a broad cooling in labor market conditions. And that's what we're seeing. So wages have actually been gradually moving down. They're still at levels what would, that would be consistent over a long period of time with 2% inflation, nonetheless, we're making progress there. And by so many in indicators, labor market demand is cooling. You can, you can look at surveys by workers and businesses who see that. You, you can look at the quits rate normalizing. You can look at job openings coming down. Um, you can look at just job creation in, in the uh, establishment survey has, you know, it's still at a high level, but it was at really an extraordinarily high level for most of the last two years. So you see cooling, particularly in, in private sector in the last, uh, you know, in the last report. So I think we see that and it's happening at a gradual pace. So that's actually not a bad thing in a sense, because it, it, if, if what we see is a labor market, very strong demand for labor, 
which is really the engine of the economy. People are, are getting hired, many people going back to work, getting wages, spending money, and that's really what's driving the economy. But that it's gradually slowing, it's gradually cooling. That's, that's a good prescription for getting where we want to get. But still we see a push to raise minimum wage. We're seeing a lot of unions go on strike or threaten strike. And the common thing is they come out with agreements like big pay increases like UPS and we have the auto workers coming up. Are you concerned then about a trend of series of big unions, these contract pushing wage inflation then? Not for us to comment on, um, on contract negotiations. Not our job, not our role. Um, you know, we, we monitor these things and we'll, we'll keep an eye on them. But uh, really that's something that's, that's handled at that level and not all right so this what this clip was about the labor market he did mention at the, uh, the very beginning of his answer about goods and that supply chains have been pretty much sorted out so the goods quote-unquote inflation or price rises have been worked out and now they're starting to see uh they're making progress he took he took uh um responsibility for this, that they're making progress and that they see it at a gradual pace. So CK, any comments on this? Um, I mean, no, I mean, they're getting into semantics and the reality is, is that, you know, it, he, it's all getting sorted out based on the market and really very little that the fed's doing. Um, you know, we don't have very much time. Uh, so, and you got a lot of slides we stuck on FOMC. So let's, uh, let's jump into, uh, GDP in China. Okay. Uh, right before we do that, though, I just want to mention that what if the Fed has raised rates the fastest in however many years, uh, 40 years, why would it be a gradual pace? You would think that if the Fed was actually doing something, it would happen much faster. But if the market was just working things out on its own, it would happen at a gradual pace. And that's what we're seeing. Okay. Now, yes, mm. let's go into. <laughs> Good US. job, Ansel. I should have passed it back to you. Let's uh, go on to U.S. GDP numbers. So this will be starting with slide number six, please, Chris. And what we have is that this came out this morning. Uh, Q2 GDP for 2023 grew at 2.4% annualized, and it was only expected to be at 2%. Of course, this is the first estimate, and we will have uh, two more estimates or revisions that come out. Uh, so that could move down towards 2%, but right now it was came in very, very hot at 2.4% annualized. And I wanted to read through this article here real quick. Let me pop it up. So this is from Business Insider. The U.S. economy is surging. Real gross domestic product or real GDP grew at an annualized rate of 2.4%. The advanced estimate for the second quarter beat 1.8% uh, increase in expected. So not 2%, but 1.8%. The estimate is above... Okay, let's move on to the meat of the article. According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, real gross domestic product uh, went up by 2.4% in the second quarter. That beats, okay, they, sorry, this is a regurgitation of this over and over again. Um, next slide, if we can go to the next slide, this is the chart of uh, quarter by quarter annualized real GDP. So you can see it was uh, negative there at the beginning of, 2022, two consecutive quarters. That was not called an official recession because they, the, the National Bureau of Economic Research said, no, this didn't meet all the criteria. It only met this two consecutive quarters, but there was no jobs part. There was no uh, um, a few other things that would 
make it an actual recession. Anyways, the, since then, we've seen positive real GDP, and this one actually accelerated a little bit from Q1. And if you go to the next slide, what I did was I went back in time and looked at the great financial crisis to see if, you know, reacceleration of GDP, does that mean we're out of the woods? And I'm comparing it here to Q2 of 2007, where it hit a new high, um, just a little bit higher than Q4 of 2006. And then within the next year, we were in recession. So uh, this doesn't mean we're out of the woods, but it could mean that we're out of the woods for the next 12 months. Maybe we have to wait till Q3 of 2024, you know, right before the presidential election, basically, uh, till we can see some recessionary numbers. And uh, that would be very interesting political timing uh, as well. But uh, CK, any thoughts on the GDP here? We're done with that. No, I mean, I think that I think that this is a great framing um, is to kind of frame it to the last uh, cycle and how things um, played out, because it's funny. People like to zoom out and look at annual numbers and then they like to like zoom in and like look at how things are going quarter over quarter. And the reality is, is if this is a cycle, if this is cyclical, there's going to it's going to rhyme to what it looked like in the past. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how how it actually plays out. Um, but at the same time. Uh, it is interesting if you reverberate back, you know, we have had some positive GDP, but it's nothing like 2021. I know things were very heated up there, uh, but at the same time, um, definitely uh, it seems like the the economy hasn't been the same since. And, you know, a lot of that I'm sure is, you know, the wealth effect is, you know, people don't feel rich. Uh, stocks are down, crypto's down, all this like stuff is down. Um, and it's, you know, it seems like people are paying their, their debts a little bit right now and things are getting a little bit harder. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been kind of like, uh, my undertone for a while. Um, do we want to say anything else about, uh, GDP? Uh, just that I still expect low growth, low inflation is the new normal after the great financial crisis with periods of a deflationary shock, uh, or shocks. And that's kind of what we've seen the the inf the cpi or quote unquote inflation was transitory and we are just returning to very minimal growth um two two percent in my opinion is minimal growth and we'll probably see you know between one and two percent going forward in the future so anyway yeah that's all the thing i have to add on that are you ready for china let's do it okay china is in big trouble and experts are starting to come out and say that China must rapidly change their whole economic model. Uh, this is a translation from Zhang Zheng. Sorry for the pronunciation, but Zhang is a distinguished professor of humanities and social sciences, dean of the School of Economics and director of research uh, at the University, Fudan University there in Shanghai. So he is one of the premier experts, and he's saying that China has to change their economic model. They cannot be reliant on uh, the export-led model. They need to switch over to consumer-led model. And I thought Michael Pettis had a good tweet thread on this. If you could pull up the next slide, that is from Michael Pettis. And I will just read through here. Um, Thanks to Pekingology for translating the, the speech. And I, of course, I will link this in the show notes when this comes out on podcast version. Uh, Zhang recognizes very clearly that a once successful development strategy is now obsolete. 
But the need to raise wages, he says, quote, is a significant blind spot in the discussions within the Chinese economic academic community. As all the discussions revolve around the development of enterprises and industries with very little attention given to wage issues, China is not yet developed an effective policy framework for uh, determining fair wages. So this is like, of course, communism, you don't have this robust free market to determine fair wages. They have to actually set this by the Politburo or, you know, by the Central Committee. Uh, so this is what he's saying, that they need to develop a policy framework to determine wages. Uh, it's a communist uh, specific problem. And he continues here. And the mechanism for collectively bargaining is virtually non-existent. China needs a reasonable wage formation mechanism that can better synchronize with GDP growth. He argues that it is crucial that Beijing switch as soon as possible to a supply side model focused on investments to a demand side uh, model focused on rising wages, quote, to address the transition from the catch-up model to a post-catch-up era. So catch-up model would be like, uh, or catch-up eras, you know, China was very low income uh, 50 years ago. They have since caught up pretty much, uh, becoming the second largest economy in the world. So th they're now in a post-catch-up era is what they're saying. And they want to switch from uh, manufacturing being the biggest exporter in the world to being probably the largest consumer in the world, which is what where the U.S. is sitting uh, at this time, continuing on here, the switch the switch should have happened at least a decade ago, according to Zhang. And because it didn't, China has wasted resources on investment with no real return for the economy. Overproduction, overinvestment in all of these unproductive ghost cities and not unprofitable rail, you know, high speed rail lines, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, all of this stuff I've been saying for a long time has been overproduction and zero productive value. And this is exactly what this Zhang is saying here. But while it is good that uh, more and more of China's leading economic policy advisors recognize how urgent it is that China rebalance away from investment to consumption and what that requires, I think they still do not recognize why it will be so difficult. In the same speech, for example, Zhang talks about the impregnable strength of the Chinese manufacturing versus that of the U.S. and other countries. But he fails to recognize the extent to which this strength is the result of precisely of China's extremely unbalanced growth. So the reason why they can be so dominant in manufacturing is because of the model. They can't just become dominant in consumption as well. They are going to have to lose dominance in manufacturing, and they're not prepared for that. Continuing, China's manufacturing competitiveness is not quote-unquote natural and certainly not inevitable, but instead is based on the enormous direct and indirect subsidies that are the obverse of the low wage share that he is correctly wants to reverse. That is why rebalancing has always been so difficult for other countries and is likely to be even more difficult for China. It means improving the quality of growth in the medium and long term, but at the expense of the over overly cosseted manufacturing sector in the short term. He is right, in other words, to say that this that at this stage, China's economy requires that wages catch up to GDP. But what he doesn't recognize is the extent to which China's manufacturing and export strength are based on the fact that wages have lagged for so long. 
And that is the end of the tweet thread by Michael Pettis. Very, very good. I recommend following Michael Pettis if you guys are not. He is an expert in China. But to sum up, their economic model needs to change. They can no longer be dependent on manufacturing. They've pretty much tapped that out. They need to switch. But they're running into this the, the low income trap, right, where you, they can't make that next step from a low income economy to a middle or high income economy. Um, so, CK, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think one of the things I would say the earliest, the the very earliest thesis of this show was bullish U.S. slash North America, bearish Europe, bearish China. That was that was the original thesis. I think that thesis is transformed into bullish, let's just call it Wall Street dollar and Bitcoin, bearish WEF globalist, bearish China slash BRICS in terms of global dominance. So we've been pretty damn consistent. Um, that was like over two years ago uh, when when Ansel really presented that thesis. And uh, we've been very, very consistent about that. So um, I guess Ansel, you know, yeah. I think you're you've been very directly correct here. You've been calling out, you know, almost like this like slow motion fall of China. You know, the realizations that you know their model, their top down model, has been broken and ineffective. Um, you know, how do you feel right now? Kind of, you know, again, I think we're seeing China. You know, if if China has to topple all the way down. We're, China's like right here. It's like at the top, you know, it's at one o'clock, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, if, if, if 12 o'clock is straight up. So there's a long way for, for China to fall from here, I think. But what do you think? Yeah, um, well, it, it all comes down to China's model being based on the existing economic order, you know, with all of the international institutions like the WTO, the World Court. Um, all of the existing Forex institutions and trading and, and things like that. And so China is dependent on the way things were pre-COVID. And now moving post-COVID with deglobalization, that is going to harm their economy. I don't think they're going to collapse or anything, but a, a very good example would be just look at what happened in Japan in 1990. You know, they were supposedly going to overtake the U.S. within a matter of years. This was all over academic circles. It was all over like the financial press that J Japan was the new behemoth on the block going to overtake the U.S. We heard that exact same thing the last five, 10 years about China. And look what happened to Japan. They they've been pretty much stagnant for the last 30 years. And I think that's probably going to happen to China as well. So they don't have to topple completely. They're just going to stop growing. They're going to come down to earth like everybody else. And, you know, the CCP is dependent on 7% growth. They're dependent on making a difference for their people. And if they can't do that, does the CCP continue to keep control of China? So, uh, yeah, there could be a political shakeup, but I don't think the Chinese economy is going like going to collapse tomorrow. Does that make sense, CK? No, no, it makes sense. Um, like I said, most of these things happen in slow motion. And because of Bitcoin, the people have a choice where they can opt out and they can continue to build, let's call it the local economy. So 
Um, not to say they have to go full sovereign individual and leave, even though a lot of miners and businesses have left yeah. China because of their unfriendly stance towards Bitcoin. But still, um, ultimately, that's the whole point about Bitcoin is it gives you opportunity to opt out of a bad system without having to leave. Uh, and I think that that's Absolutely. super bullish. I know that we have to wrap pretty soon. You know, I want to hit you with one tough question here, Ansel, before we do, right. which is if you were to make an estimate when it takes uh, or what would it take for the CCP to lose power over China? Um, what would be like your your estimate there in terms of years? In terms of years? Well, I think that they would have to lose a military conflict. Like, let's say they try to invade Taiwan and it doesn't go as planned. I think that could lead to a very rapid change of power, um, the CCP losing power. Also, if they just have an absolute recession, like not just, uh, you know, GDP around three two three percent but if they actually had some negative GDP for a year or so, I think that would have some major consequences politically for them. So um, those those would be what I'm watching for. And uh, time frame, who knows, five, 10 years, I, there's a rising chance that the CCP won't be around. All right. I think I think that that's fair. Honestly, a lot. I think the world is a very different place in 2030. 2030 on is a completely new paradigm. That's been kind of my view for as long as the show's been around. So that's what I bring to the show is is that time frame. But Ansel, uh, another great one. Y'all, this is FedWatch. This is the only show that talks macro and Bitcoin and takes these deep dives into what these central bankers are saying, what is happening across the globe. Ansel does a great job of curating that information. I'm CK. I'm going to be at Bitcoin Amsterdam October 12th to the 13th. We'll see you there. And uh, Ansel, any housekeeping to close it out for yourself? Nope. Check out BitcoinandMarkets.com. Thanks to the community hanging out on Telegram. And I'll see you guys see next you. time. See you guys next Thursday. We'll be right back here. Peace. My fellow plebs, Bitcoin Magazine is headed back to Amsterdam in 2023. We're returning to Westergast to build on this historic success and continue our mission of global hyper-Bitcoinization. Bitcoin Amsterdam was the biggest European Bitcoin event in history. Held from October 12th to the 14th at Westergast Event Forum, offering six different on-site locations and three fully programmed stages, we are absolutely stoked to catapult the European community to the global stage. Tickets are at their lowest prices right now. Lock yours in at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. That's b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam.